Tucker Carlson is out and Joe Biden is in. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the sage of Authenticity Woods. Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Fast Growing Trees and I on the FTC from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. More about both of those in due course. If some of you are not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity... The most shocking media news in memory came down yesterday. We're recording late Tuesday morning, as is our want. Tucker Carlson fired by Fox News. And this was, uh, I saw Tucker at the Heritage Foundation Friday night, 50th anniversary dinner. He was a speaker on the top of the world, masterly performance. I had some problems with it, but people ate it up. And then Monday, uh, after, you know, with no chance to have a, a last show, press release comes down, very vanilla. We've agreed to go our separate ways. So uh, Fox just fired him. And uh, we don't really know the reason why yet. A lot of speculation seems to me, though, basically at the end of the day, this is Rupert Mur- Murdoch saying, you know what? This is my network. And it's not going to be defined by anyone else. It's bigger than anyone else. And yes, Tucker is an immensely talented guy, but we'll find someone else and we'll keep on trucking. I think that's a reasonable assessment there, Rich. Um, I think that uh, this was so unforeseen that on Monday morning, Fox News Channel was running promos for Tucker's show that night. Uh, and apparently nobody within the network or, you know, exceptionally few people within the uh, outside of the Rupert Murdoch inner circle knew that this decision was going to come down. Um, I cannot claim any super inside sources or foresight, but in last week's Morning Jolt and in a column for that other publication in Washington that I write for, uh, I wrote that the era of the loose cannon cable news host had come to an end. And this was because of the Dominion settlement that, uh, as of at least a few years ago, the average price for a 30-second ad on Tucker Carlson's program was $14,000. I imagine that's gone up in the last couple of years, inflation and things like that, but that's that. You got to sell a lot of 30-second ads at $14,000, let us say $15,000, $17,000 a pop to make up for $787 million in the settlement. And don't forget, Fox News still has the Smartmatic lawsuit that it presumably will seek to settle. Um, have it, obviously these were really unique circumstances that led to the Dominion lawsuit, but I suspect that the su- massive settlement in this lawsuit was going to basically a, uh, a, you know, chum in the water for anybody else who ever felt like they had been defamed by Fox news. And I suspect that after years of having on air hosts saying pretty much whatever popped into their head on, you know, live speaking off the cuff, uh, Lou Dobbs, I think turned out to be the most egregious offender in the whole Dominion matter and was mentioned out of the 20 examples in that summary judgment part of the lawsuit, uh, in which it was not a matter of opinion in the eyes of the judge and not a matter, it was a false statement of fact, uh, 12 of them traced back to Lou Dobbs. So Lou Dobbs did not single-handedly cost his employer or former employer $787 million, but he made the job of Dominion lawyers a hell of a lot easier. 
So I suspect that Fox News management wanted some new rules of the road. They wanted some new guardrails, new guidelines, something that would assure them that they would not be in this situation again and have somebody claiming to have been defamed because some on-air host had, you know, gone off on, gone rogue and started, you know, ripping into somebody and lying about them. Um, now, I, is this the only factor? No, I think probably the Abby Grossman uh, lawsuit probably is a potential contributor. I think you look at the worldview of Rupert Murdoch, and you look at the worldview of Tucker Carlson, and you probably would have a Venn diagram of two circles pulling apart. Uh, a lot of people didn't know that you know Tucker Carlson attended and spoke at the funeral of the president of the Hells Angels. Could you see Rupert Murdoch ever doing that? Mm-hmm. I, I was not aware of that. But yeah. uh, clearly, you, you build something, a billion-dollar business, and someone else comes to define it and associate it with views you don't hold. That's got to be uh, irksome, to say the least. But Noah, one reason this was shocking is that it wasn't like Don Lemon. We'll talk a little bit about Don Lemon. There have been stories about disenchantment with him at CNN. We'd seen uh, on-air spats with his co-host. It, it was obvious that that thing was coming to an end at some point. There was zero indication of that at Fox. No one that we're aware of ever called him and said, you know, Ray Epps, is that his name? Ray? Mm-hmm. Ray Epps. You know, maybe maybe don't go down that route, uh, Tucker. That's a blind alley. We don't want you to, to go there. You know what? Your, your January 6th tape, it's, it's interesting that the guy with the, the Viking horns was uh, escorted by uh, the cops. But let's make sure we're, we're being really uh, factual and accurate about how he got in the building in the first place. Nothing. <laughs> like, none of that. For, for um, As far as anyone could tell from the outside, and uh, a lot of people on the inside, and apparently Tucker himself believed this, he was running the place almost, you know, without any uh, direction or editorial control. And there's been a lot of MAGA blowback about this. You know, how, how could this dirty deed be done to Tucker Carlson? And y- your take yesterday was no one did this to Tucker. He did it to himself. Correct. Um, so briefly, my, my limited experience in television, uh, notwithstanding, I do have some experience in radio. And John, Don Lemon's experience, where he was just summarily demoted and humiliated and tried to be, you know, generally management was trying to push him out in very public ways, is the exception, not the rule. Um, you don't get a goodbye show when you're fired. You often don't get a goodbye show at all. Um, my experience, I've been through a format flip in radio where when a radio station goes from talk to like the top 50, for example, or top 20 songs. And, mm-hmm. and it's like the last days of a dying regime. Like nobody knows who's in charge. People are burning mm-hmm. documents. I went to my boss to ask if I was fired. <laughs> and he says, I can't fire you because I don't know if I have a job anymore. <laughs> it really is that chaotic. Um, T- Tucker Carlson is an extremely talented broadcaster. He had also become an extremely irresponsible broadcaster. It seems as though the causes for his dismissal here were multi multi prong multifarious it wasn't just his you know flirtation with the idea that the january 6 riots were uh, prompted by fbi agitation and this individual might have been an fbi agent he never said as much but he implied it very strongly um it was that he was as you say he thought of himself as somewhat bigger than the network and had been agitating within the organization which is never good for in any organization regardless of your level of talent and uh, also this ongoing suit, apparently, over sexual um, uh, harassment with a former staffer. I can't speak to the legitimacy of those allegations, but it was all just piling up. And Fox has given every indication that the re- real estate is vastly more valuable than anybody who temporarily occupies it. A, va- a variety of hosts who've, who've had the top-rated show on that 
uh, on that platform have been dismissed once at Bill O'Reilly's case as a result of a costly settlement. It's not something that should be bizarre given his uh, given Rupert Murdoch's conduct. You know, News of the World was a profitable enterprise when it was shut down because it had become a liability. So none of this is especially surprising. And yes, Tucker Carlson's conduct did invite this kind of uh, of backlash. So yeah, he doesn't have anybody to blame but himself, and a lot of his fans who are casting about for a villain here should be looking much closer to home. Charlie? I just don't care. I don't think I've ever cared about anything less. Because it doesn't matter. Nobody watches cable news. Like I've been on cable news. I've been on Tucker Carlson show once. As I've been on Morning Joe and... CNN and the Little Brother show that's called Meet the Press but isn't the Meet the Press people would be impressed if I went on. And the audience for these shows in total is, what, 5 million? 1.7% of the population. Smaller than the number of people who believe they've been personally abducted by aliens. And I resent that it plays as big a role as it does in our politics because it's fringe. It's fringe to watch cable news all the time. Most Americans get their news from local news. 62% this year, I believe, is the number. I think this is marginally good in that Tucker Carlson seemed to want to move the Republican Party in a direction that I dislike, and that cable news on both sides of the aisle plays this outsized role within the parties and within the primaries, and has, I think, led both parties to start picking candidates that the rest of the country, the normal part of the country that doesn't spend its time obsessing over cable news, absolutely loathes. People have asked, how did we get to a point where 70% of the American voting public doesn't want the incumbent president to run again, and he has announced? How did we get to the point where, is it 61%, 65% of the American voting public doesn't want Donald Trump to run again, and he's the front runner within the GOP? Well, one of the answers to that question is cable news. Cable news is really good at creating this completely hermetically sealed, internally logically consistent bubble in which people can get themselves famous and popular in a very small clique, but when they leave it, put off normal voters. So I think if I had to say good or bad... I think this is a marginal improvement, although we, of course, don't know who he's going to be replaced by. But I would like to see less focus on this. And I would like to see this have less of an effect on our politics. Because I think this is one of the reasons that our politics has become dysfunctional. So, Charlie, let me put you on the doesn't doesn't matter point. Clear, (coughs) cable is not uh, what it used to be. It's a declining business, you look at the numbers in aggregate, as, as, as you just pointed out, it's a very small segment of the population. But Tucker did have a unique ability to make things happen and to drive the news and change the news cycle. I'll just cite two examples. You know, Chris Rufo, maybe he would have gone on uh, some other cable channel and sort of ignited the revolt 
this grassroots revolt against CRT, or maybe it would have happened uh, elsewhere. But Tucker being really interested in that issue very early on and providing a platform from for Rufo that uh, uh, was more, you know, a high profile and electric uh, than other cable platforms, I think mattered. J.D. Vance, maybe he wins that Senate primary just with Trump's endorsement. Maybe he can make a pretty good case that he, that he would. But it helped that he could go on Tucker Carlson regularly and every single uh, segment, you know, raise a million dollars or whatever it was, um, people just going to his website and showering him with money. And the most hardcore activists were watching it and uh, care what, what Tucker says. So um, uh, did, did, did that not matter? Well, yeah, as I said, I think it's marginally good because it has this outsized influence in these corners of politics. But it doesn't matter in the sense that relative to all the other things that are happening in the United States right now, this is not important. And if you ask the average person, 98 out of 100 people who Tucker Carlson was, they wouldn't know. And there are people right now on Twitter, which exhibits precisely the same dynamic that you just described, saying, why hasn't Ron DeSantis commented on Tucker Carlson? What? Mm-hmm. He's in Japan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is crazy. So, yeah, I take your point. It has this, this influence, but it also doesn't in that I have read, because it's my job, a lot of post-hoc reviews of Tucker Carlson's tenure. He did this, he did that, he attracted these people. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, the show before Tucker Carlson's has, what, 85% of his audience? Mm -hmm. The guy who came before Tucker Carlson, Bill O'Reilly, was pretty popular too. I'm not saying you could literally put a monkey in that slot and have it attract 2 million Mm -hmm. people. But you could put somebody who had certain simian qualities and was perhaps a little <laughs> more intelligent than the average, and you would still do pretty well. Yeah. So, so Jim, it, it does seem to me that Tucker was uniquely influential, one, because he was is a supremely talented broadcaster, and is an excellent writer, and that's the secret sauce to successful primetime programs. It, it's not just being good on TV or looking good on, on TV or being good at uh, impromptu, spontaneous conversation. It's being a good writer. You know, Keith Oberman, his show at its height, he just sat in his Manhattan apartment somewhere, uh, you know, a, a total uh, antisocial guy, and wrote his show. And he's a really good writer. Rachel Maddow, at her height, same thing. And Tucker, some of these monologues, there was one he did, I don't know, six months ago or so, about how the Democrats have to nominate Kamala Harris because all their all their assumptions about social justice and DEI, et cetera, mandate that they do it. And this was PJ O'Rourke-worthy copy. I think you could probably just printed out and published it in a, uh, a prestigious publication without changing a, a word. <laughs> That's just a, a very rare rare uh, ability. Now, the downside, as Charlie uh, points out, well, there are a number of them, but one of them is that he, he was really invested in a way that Bill O'Reilly or most cable show hosts aren't in changing the right and shaping it in his image and was pretty successful uh, at that. And even if you get, you know, a dyed in the wool populist in that 8 p.m. 
slot. He's not going to have the abilities of Tucker Carlson. And even if he wants to change uh, the, uh, the right in, in a certain direction, it's probably not going to be as good at it. You know, every once in a while when I would run into a diehard Tucker Carlson fan, and they mentioned this to me and clearly expected me to concur that Carlson was – Carlson should run for president was not a unheard of sentiment you'd hear from the fan base. Uh, I, would, I would enjoy playing the role of the Tucker Carlson hipster that I was into him way before he was cool and let people know that like when he was writing for the Weekly Standard, particularly back in the 1990s, Tucker Carlson was a brilliant writer. He was a brilliant interviewer. I think he was employed for about 20 minutes for um, uh, Tina Brown's yeah. talk mm-hmm. magazine. Um, interestingly, also a critic of George W. Bush way before it was cool. I'm going to talk like mm-hmm. 1999. He was a McCain. He was a McCain guy. Yeah. Um, Tucker Carlson, you know, was just a, as you mentioned, a brilliant. Now, I... I think a lot of that got lost bit by bit as he went into television. Let's remember, you know, like Tucker Carlson has been on television for a quarter century about now. Um, Crossfire uh, at CNN. He was it's been two years at PBS, right? People forget uh, Tucker Carlson was at MSNBC for three years. Came to Fox News in 2009 and clearly went together with the brand and the identity of that network like peanut butter and jelly. Um but he kind of I, – I, I believe that Tucker Carlson um, dumbed down that intellectual rigor we saw in those old Weekly Standard articles for populist tub-thumping and, you know, gypsies, are they coming to your town? You know, like there was he, – he enjoyed co- – the UFO stuff. Tucker Carlson did enjoy covering some really absurd stuff once he had his own show. Um, and I think that was that was not for the good of conservatism. That was not for the good of the cable news world. Obviously, the ratings were good. Um, and I would point out, like, I, I'm going to dispute Charlie slightly. And it's not entirely because I figure tomorrow I'm probably going to be on what he called the meet the press that isn't really meet the press. Um, <laughs> that I I still like being. Anyway, um, that, look, yes, we can say, oh, the cable news world isn't, is, and, you know, it's like right in today's morning jolt. The audience is aging. The audience is shrinking. It is not as big a deal as it used to be. You could chalk this up for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, exhaustion with a very tumultuous couple of years. Uh, exhaustion with the news cycle, Trump exhaustion. Um, whatever you want to characterize it, it's not where, what it is. Maybe it'll pick up next year as the presidential campaign increases. I don't know. Um, but it is small. But of those people who watch Tucker Carlson, if not all, a very big chunk vote in the Republican presidential primary. Mm-hmm. And that is why when Tucker Carlson puts out a note saying, what do you think of Ukraine? Yep. Everybody answers. And Ron DeSantis' answer creates news for the next couple of days because Tucker Carlson can get answers from people that in a way that other cable news hosts could be ignored. Yeah. yeah. So, no. Go ahead, Charlie. I, I was going to slightly push back against Jim on something, but you can respond no, no, you to should. a slight, slight push back against you if you went. No, you wore no. a ball against all here. <laughs> I would just agree to some extent with what Jim said and go a step further and say, I don't think it's just that Tucker Carlson was not good for conservatism. I think he was bad for conservatism. The agenda that Tucker Carlson had, the incentives that Tucker Carlson had, were not remotely in line with the incentives that politicians who want to win presidential elections or Senate elections have. And this is the problem I just described, that he gets to three, four, five 
million viewers. That's terrific. That's extraordinary. He makes Fox $100 million a year. He gets paid however many millions. Good luck to him in that regard. But in the process, he damages the Republican Party and the conservative vehicle immeasurably. And I think he was worse in this regard than Bill O'Reilly. I was never a fan of Bill O'Reilly. I never watched his show. I never watched Tucker's show either. But I have seen clips. And as I say, I went once on Tucker's show. And Bill O'Reilly seems to me to be less pernicious because Bill O'Reilly strikes me as the sort of guy who you would meet at the pub. He wasn't conservative in every respect. He had a avuncular affect. He moved around with the zeitgeist, whereas Tucker Carlson had developed this Buchananite worldview that he promulgated night in, night out, that is just not popular, that is actually not even popular among Republican voters. Perhaps it is among Republican primary voters. Yeah. So, you know, Bill O'Reilly was just outside of conservatism. He's never part of the conservative movement. He didn't have interest in it. Tucker was different, you know, came from the movement and wanted to, in certain respects, destroy it. And my slight pushback against you, Jim, and then we'll get Noah back in here, was for cable news, Tucker was an excellent writer. Uh, so, uh, sure, it wasn't like 5,000-word profiles of some interesting politician or, or something, but it was still just sparkling writing for cable news. But then there was a topic selection and what he was trying to do, you know, gypsies and, and all that, which is a, a, a different matter. And, no, I'll go to, go to you on this. So the, the problem with Tucker's worldview from where I sit and I imagine you guys sit as well, one, you know, where he just wanted to go on substance, on, you know, economics, on the Ukraine war. And then there was this conspiracism that uh, was was very pernicious. And, you know, he was kind of, uh, as as you said earlier, kind of dancing uh, right right along the line, never quite saying it, but you would, if you watched it, you knew what he was saying, and you also had to, to wonder about the sincerity of it, given the text messages that were exposed in the Dominion case, because on, you know, the election conspiracy claims, yes, Tucker, to his credit, you know, pushed back against Sidney Powell and helped ex- expose her as a fraud, but clearly he thought this stuff was, was crazy and hated that Trump was doing it, but if you were a viewer on his show every night, you would have had no idea. Perhaps. I mean, you would have had to suspend disbelief. And I'm sure quite a lot of his viewers did just that. In keeping with the war of all against all rich, I'm going to drag you into it because I want to push back slightly on the notion that he was trying to mold the Republican Party in his old or the conservative movement in his own image. Uh, Oftentimes, it appeared to me that he was allowing the very fringe elements on Twitter, for example, to program his program, Um, that he wasn't so much leading as he was following the sentiments and the zeitgeist that that, you know, prevails in these very cloistered corners of the internet. And you don't have to go to the Dominion. Fox's own lawyers argued in 2020 that you can't believe what he says. Mm-hmm. They argued in a, in a slander case that he's, he's a broadcaster. It's, not, it's exaggeration, non-literal commentary, they argued. Um, in part because I don't think he genuinely believes the vaccine skepticism he endorsed, his relentless propagandizing for Russia. Uh, quite a bit of the, pro- of the economic positions he adopted in the Trump era a former Cato Institute fellow, somehow became the expositor of an industrial policy in America. I don't believe it. I think he found that to be a vehicle that was valuable, that got him a lot of camera time and a lot of influence in the Republican Party in the direction it was going. He saw where the parade was headed and jumped in front of it. 
Yeah, but so, so no, what I'm getting at is like Bill O'Reilly doesn't care about the Heritage Foundation one way or the other. Tucker, uh, when Kay James was running the Heritage Foundation, hated the Heritage Foundation, went of his way to attack it, uh, to either uh, destroy it or um, s- send it uh, to pull it in his direction. That that's just that that was a unique Tucker thing that that you, you didn't get from any prior primetime host on on Fox News and probably won't won't again. Have you noticed just how clearly we are illustrating why we will never be given eight pm <laughs> slots on cable news? Because every single one of us has said. I want to slightly disagree <laughs> with you. Yeah. Our entire conversation has been slight polite. For the record, all you guys are sellouts to the establishment, okay? <laughs> well, like, you know, but I mean, hate the American people. That is not what the cable news audience wants to hear or wants to see. And I think that's a, like, you know, this again, this is, I'll get canceled for Meet the Press now tomorrow. Uh, but say, look, this, that's on the viewers. They should want something better. That you know, I as much well, as that, you know, the food fight might. Uh, what? Yes. Well, well they, do. they do. They do. This is my point: is that uh, leave aside the influence that it has in the primaries, which does matter. Most people hate this with a passion. Ninety-eight point two percent of the American population has better things to do with its time, and it's not an aversion to news, because 62% of Americans say they watch local news broadcasts. He's absolutely right. The cable news audience is shrinking, and it's shrinking as a result of the product they're getting. Imagine if in 1985, Coke introduced new Coke, and then didn't withdraw it in in a few months. They said, no, this is what you're getting, and we're going to stuff it down your throats no matter what you think. This is not a marketplace anymore. So, really quickly, I can't go to Charlie on this one, Jim, because if he doesn't care about Tucker, he especially doesn't care about uh, Don Lemon, I assume. <laughs> but we, we had an exit question about Don Lemon, uh, whether he'd still be there in six months or something like that. I, I think every maybe we had three no's and one, one yes. I, I forget where everyone came down. I, I said no. So, uh, for me, th- this this seemed inevitable. You know, if, if they're going to have a new CNN, which I'm increasingly skeptical about, you can't have Don Lemon be, be a still be a face of the network. So they they sh- uh, bumped him out of prime time, kind of awkwardly slot him into this morning show. Maybe he doesn't like women generally. I, I don't know. He certainly does not like his two women co-hosts. The, the whole thing was kind of weird and awkward. And sure enough, he's gone. So uh, speaking of Fox News, longtime friend of National Review, Megyn Kelly has her own program and podcast and Which I believe she's having yes as she has uh, had you and Charlie on on National Review Day number 1 Michael Brendan Doherty and myself on National Review Day number 2 and I think we're supposed to do another one this week and I asked because I think the last Don Lemon controversy was when Michael and I were on and I said does cable news drive you crazy and it was a little bit tongue in cheek but it was just kind of a recognition of something about uh, and maybe just not even cable news, maybe just like network news, maybe just television news drives people crazy over time. Maybe it's the money, maybe it's the pressure, maybe it's the long hours and the, you know, living your life around the news cycle, just something about it. Because, you know, you look at Chris Cuomo, you look at Matt Lauer and all the Me Too scandals that came along. There's just this like explosion of utterly insane behavior. And Don Lemon may have been the nuttiest fruitcake of them all 
in that, you know, the Variety had this story about how he was, besides the Nikki Haley isn't in her prime, I think that was the, the thing that had set yeah. off the last one. <laughs> Um, I mean, it sounds like Don Lemon like was stalking and haranguing his female co-workers over jealousy that they were getting more airtime over him. I mean, he just sounded like an unhinged maniac. This is beyond the getting drunk on air uh, on New Year's Eve. This had been a, a growing trend of CNN and its increasingly debaucherous uh, <laughs> New Year's Eve specials and stuff like that. But I mean, he just he just sounded like a lunatic and the sort of guy who would never mind getting fired. You want to file a restraining order against and so this was not surprising in the slightest. I think maybe the surprise is the timing. And you can't help but wonder if when the news of the Tucker Carlson thing broke, CNN said, this is the best news segment. Do it now. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's get rid of them. Yeah. Pull the trigger. True, but it's fun, um, that's fun to think about. So I was on, speaking of Megan, I was on with her yesterday briefly, and she had Glenn Greenwald on right, right before me. And Glenn must have never watched CNN and only seen Don Lemon's name in, in print because he constantly referred to him as Don Lemon, which I think sounds no, better, actually. It's, it's more interesting pronunciation. Yeah. So, Noah, X, X question to you. Let's double barrel at Fox News after Tucker Carlson's shocking departure, at least shocking for some of us. Will be better? Will be the same? Will be worse? Well, that's pretty subjective. I mean, my definition of better seems unlikely, because my definition of better is far more conventionally conservative than what the cable news audience they've been cultivating over the years wants. And if they follow the audience, then it won't be better. But I, I always rejected the idea that was promulgated by just about every observer of media since this decision was handed down that Fox can't change. It wouldn't change. It can't change. It has no incentive to change. It had 787 million reasons to change, mm -hmm. as Jim wrote very competently and effectively. And yeah, the compelling logic of your fiduciary responsibilities to your investors is is pretty ineluctable. It's inescapable. They had to bend to it. And so they did. So they will change. What direction they change in is yet to be seen, but I don't have a high hope that it's going to go my way. Charlie Cook, if you want to answer, you can pass. Well, I do want to answer. I think it's not going to change because I think it can't change because I think the problems with Fox, as with CNN or MSNBC, are intrinsic to the format. And this is why it's not paradoxical for me to say that I don't care about this and to say that I am alarmed and annoyed by the outsized influence cable news has. I don't care about this because the format that has a hold over this small part of the population is ineluctably going to lead to the sort of programming that I'm complaining about. You mentioned Megyn Kelly's show. Megyn Kelly's show is really good. Why? Because well, it's a couple of hours. She has lots of different guests on. She lets them talk at length. She asks them questions. She has people from the left. She has people from the right. She gives her view, but she doesn't interrupt. She doesn't drop out every seven seconds for a commercial break. She doesn't restrict the responses to 14 seconds or allow the people she has on to interrupt each other. The problem with cable news is the format. There's the expectations and the format which lead to what we see. So, no, Fox is not going to get better. The next guy will be the same as the last guy. Same old, same old. Jim Garrity. Uh, Quality-wise, I think it will be about the same, but I think this necessity of a post-Dominion settlement world will make them a little less likely to buy into any crazy claims, or if some guest makes crazy claims, you will see someone rather quickly jumping in and saying that there's no evidence for those claims. 
so in that sense, it'll be slightly better. But I think the tone style is going to be largely the same. But also, I think a year from now, the ratings will be better because there'll be a Republican presidential primary mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, there, as Noah points out, subjective questions and there are a couple different ways to look at it. Ratings, I think, will be about equal. I, I don't think, you know, the sh- short term, there's going to be a sag. You can assume at 8 p.m., but then they'll they'll eventually make it up. And just in, in terms of the general tenor and content, I think it will be better. I think uh, that that 8 p.m. slot is so important to the entire network. It colors the rest of the network. There are segments done about w- whatever the, the host says at that time. And th- this is a, a message that uh, will not have to be directly conveyed to anyone that going down rabbit holes of, of conspiracy theories is is a bad thing. And just let me say, uh, I think Fox News is really uh, really I- important. C- cable in general is in decline, but it's it's very important to have a uh, um, a conservative outlet, uh, you know, that's pushing back um, and asking different questions and covering different stories. You know, there's a lot of good work done at Fox. Bill Malusian down at Eagle Pass on on the border and uh, um, Hunter Biden, other things that uh, wouldn't be covered or certainly not with the intensity that Fox brings to it. With that. The second barrel of this next question to you, Noah, Tucker Carlson will be less influential, equally influential, more influential in the short to medium term here. That's a real good question. Um, Michael Brandon Doherty had a piece shortly after uh, this was announced where he said that this you know, set Tucker up to be the next big thing in independent media. Now, Tucker Carlson has already founded a media venue, The Daily Caller, um, and that's a really successful enterprise. But yeah, there's room for more um, voices in that space, and he's certainly going to have an audience that he can tap into. Uh, I don't know whether that's something that he'd be interested in. He might be. Um, if he goes down this route and does his show unfettered in a, a venue like what, for example, Megyn Kelly has made for herself, I can see him being more influential than what he is today. Uh, that would take a lot of work. And Tucker's a very industrious person, so I don't think he wouldn't engage in that sort of thing. But it's a climb, and he would have to commit to it. Um, so, but I can certainly see it. So I lean towards more influential than. Wow, we got a more. We got a more on the board, Charlie. Well, I don't know. It depends which particular strain of conservatism Tucker Carlson picks up next and sells as if he's always believed it. It's going to be tough for him to build up that audience without the fox platform he's a very talented person i don't know we'll see where he lands i mean in 2009 he was working at the cato institute now he's a buchananite maybe next he'll become something completely new jim garrity um my instincts say he's going to be about the same level of influence but i kind of think it might be a different kind of influence and and maybe a good way of describing it is that Joe Rogan is enormously influential, but there is a certain audience that he doesn't reach because he's not on, uh, broadcast or cable television. And there's a certain amount of, you know, America's people who are there, there's a certain segment of America, mostly America, older Americans who are used to getting their information like that. They're not used to downloading a podcast, which they should be listening to the editors, um, that they're not necessarily used to, they're, they're used to watching things on cable television. And so I think 
Tucker Carlson will lose some of that audience. I don't think Fox News will have, I think they'll have a modest dip with whoever the substitute guest host is for the next couple of weeks and months. And then just as they overcame the departures of Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly, you know, a year or two from now, they'll be about the same ratings. Um, but I do think that it'll be a different audience and it might be a more Rogan-esque counterculture audience. Yeah, I'm going to say less. I, I just think that that platform is so important, 8 p.m., at Fox, I don't think Ron DeSantis, for instance, will feel as compelled to answer any questionnaires he gets from Tucker Carlson in the future. I also think it's it's difficult to convert Fox viewers to you know a podcast or a streaming plot platform. O- older viewership that just very comfortable turning on Fox and, and leaving it on, and n- not necessarily as interested as as a younger folks and and searching out various uh, alternative forms of media. That said. He's going to do something, um, and he's immensely talented, and people will still be paying attention to him. So he'll still be hugely influential, I would just say, less than he has been the last several years. With that, let's finally pause after this long segment to hear from our first sponsor this episode, Fast Growing Trees. Breathe some life into your backyard with FastGrowingTrees.com. This spring, from shade to fresh fruit to privacy and natural beauty, let FastGrowingTrees.com help you plant your dream garden with their expert advice and fast, reliable shipping. FastGrowingTrees.com's plant experts curate thousands of easy-to-grow plant, shrub, and tree varieties for your unique climate. Meyer lemons to evergreens and everything in between. Happy plants, happy home, right? But sometimes it's hard to know. Which plants will do best? No problem, because with FastGrowingTrees.com, you get customized recommendations based on your specific needs. Plus, their plant experts are always available to help keep your plants growing healthy through the season and beyond. No more waiting in long lines and hauling heavy plants around. With FastGrowingTrees.com, you order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. And with Fast Growing Trees 30-Day Alive and Thrive guarantee, you know everything will look great fresh out of the box. Join over 1.5 million happy Fast Growing Trees customers. Go to FastGrowingTrees.com slash editors now to get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com slash editors. Please check it out. So Noah... You never had any doubt, really, that Joe Biden would run again. I was very skeptical. There's still, uh, I still have a little skepticism whether he'll actually make it uh, to the uh, finish line, uh, given given the the possibility of uh, some some sort of uh, health event. But he is in it to survive it. Once again, he um, launched his video, his campaign with a video today, 6 a.m. Not the most compelling or exciting video, as you expect. Notably, leads with images of January 6th, obviously desperate to relitigate once again the case against Donald Trump. What do you make of it? Well, first, I want to begin by giving myself a little pat on the back because no one else is going to. It's very hard to remember that in early 2021, the conventional wisdom was that Joe Biden wouldn't, couldn't, can't run again. This was generally accepted. He was this bridge to the future. And that had to, in order for you to believe that, you had to disregard the idea that all the people in his orbit, whose careers depended on his, would defer, that all the political prospects that existed because of his position in the Oval Office would be imperiled by his abdication and nobody would care. And there was a total lack of heirs apparent that made this a one-term prospect remote. So, 
it was predictable and foreseeable, and it should have been predicted and foreseen more. That said, this video is an indication of what we've seen from Joe Biden and everybody in his orbit, that they are locked in this tidal orbit with Donald Trump, that they need Donald Trump, that Donald Trump is the is the entire impetus for Joe Biden's re-election campaign, that he exists to stop Donald Trump. And even if Donald Trump doesn't win the nomination, they're going to run against Donald Trump. Whoever is the nominee will be the second coming of Donald Trump. Um, nobody is more invested in keeping Donald Trump in our politics than the Democratic Party as it exists today. Uh, it, it is, they are just locked in this, in this, uh, you know, this relationship, this, this, this symbiotic relationship that is probably detrimental to Joe Biden's political prospects. Because as you say in that introductory, in that, that announcement video, they don't really dwell on the accomplishments that would conventionally be pushed in a reelection campaign. Now they have all the time in the world to push um, the, uh, for example, the COVID uh, relief effort in 2021 and the infrastructure bill and all that stuff that supposedly energizes Democrats. But if it supposedly energized Democrats, they'd lean into it more. That it, the, the answer is that it doesn't really energize Democrats. But the answer is that negative partisanship is the most powerful physical force in our politics. And Joe Biden is, has leaned into that in his reelection campaign. It will be a vote for me isn't necessarily a vote for me. It is a vote against Donald Trump. That's a powerful message. It might actually work. But if you evaluate it in a vacuum, as voters were asked to do in an NBC poll taken over the weekend and asked whether or not Joe Biden should run again, seven out of 10 people say no. Yeah. Seven out 50, of 10 people can't muster. 51% of Democrats. 51% of Democrats can't, can't summon an answer in an affirmative case for Joe Biden. They can, they can make a case against Donald Trump and Joe Biden benefits from it. But that's not the same thing as saying I support Joe Biden. And that kind of support, begrudging support, is soft support. And that's something mm -hmm. Democrats should be really concerned about. Yeah, so Charlie, that NBC poll also had Joe Biden at 41% approval. The launch video didn't really talk about the economy at all. And inflation has been eroding real wages for a couple years now, but he's a default choice and a placeholder president. It worked for him in 20, it worked for him in 22, and they're desperate to run that same campaign again in 24 and hoping Trump will be the nominee, in which case their message will be Trump, 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 abortion, democracy, and oh yeah, by the way, I signed a bunch of new spending bills. I think it's a risk. I have been pretty caustic about the Republican Party's trajectory, and I still think, as I said a few weeks ago, that Joe Biden is the favorite if Donald Trump is the nominee. But the Biden rationale is inextricably linked from uh, with... Donald Trump being the nominee. And if you look at this video, the slogan they chose, let's finish this job, mm -hmm. can only really apply to stopping Donald Trump from becoming president once again. Yeah, we, we struck the snake uh, a couple times with the rake, but it's still wiggling around behind the shed. So let, let's go back there and do some more work. And I wrote a corner post this morning and I quoted Axios 
which covered Biden's announcement by noting that he's already running a never Trump campaign and has Trump as Biden's, quote, reason to run and as the issue to build his campaign around. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. The first one is that Trump might not be the nominee. He's probably most likely to be the nominee, but what if it's Ron DeSantis? What happens then? What happens when you have a 43-year-old campaigning with his attractive wife and three young children, when you have 68% of American voters thinking that at 82, which is how old he'd be when he started his second term, Joe Biden is too old. What happens if Joe Biden does try to hide in his basement and run an anti-Trump campaign against somebody who is not Donald Trump? That's the first problem. The second problem is that let's finish this job. It's not a transferable message away from Donald Trump, given what has happened during Joe Biden's presidency. Let's finish this job is a slogan that could have been used by Franklin Roosevelt. It's a slogan that could have been used by Ronald Reagan. It's a slogan that could have been used by Bill Clinton. But Joe Biden is none of those people. 70% of Americans, as was just pointed out, don't want him to run. 66% of independents don't want him to run. 51% of Democrats don't want him to run. Finish what job? His approval rating's 41%. His disapproval rating's 54%. Finish what job? He has been president at the same time as the United States has experienced chronic inflation. Now, in that poll, 20% of Americans thought that Biden had made inflation better. 20%. 28% thought he'd made it worse, and 49% thought he'd ignored it. Finish what job? 14% of Americans think that the economy is good or excellent. Again, finish what job? This is a gamble. Biden thought in 2019 that he was the one guy who could beat Trump, and maybe he was right. And he thinks now that he is the one guy who can beat Trump again, and maybe he's right. But if Trump doesn't run, this is going to be really awkward. And if things turn horribly for Biden next year, this is going to be awkward. I think that Trump is a massive liability who is extremely likely to lose. I don't know if I think that with a clearly disintegrating Joe Biden in the middle of a recession with a commercial real estate crisis and inflation still hovering around. So this is a risk. This is a risk, even though Biden is the favorite. This is a real monomaniacal risk that could quickly get away from him. Yeah, so so Jim, a couple things. One, Biden said pretty much, I, I'm just going to be the bridge, you know, I'm the, the transitional figure. I'll, I'll be the bridge to the next generation. Then he looked across the water. He's like, wait a minute, who's that? Oh, that's Kamala Harris standing there waving at me. No, we're, we're not crossing the bridge. We're, we're, we're staying right here, which isn't a crazy uh, calculation by any means. But what I think, following on to one of Charlie's points, they kind of think that the anti-Trump message will be transferable 
to a Ron DeSantis or someone else who potentially beats Trump for the nomination. And I don't see that at all. You know, if, if DeSantis actually beats Trump and Trump is, is clearly the odds-on favorite, he's going to go through the Trump buzzsaw, right? He's going to have to fight back. Trump's going to throw everything at him and he's going to prevail over Trump and def- define the, the party uh, in his image and with his agenda. So just running against DeSantis as a, a, a Trump guy will really be backward looking and, and, and my view, un- unlikely to work. I agree. Um, it's been reported in quite a few places that apparently Joe Biden does not think that Kamala Harris could beat Donald Trump if he had decided to stand aside and let her run as his assessor and running in 2024. That seems like for as adult as Joe Biden seems these days, that seems like a reasonable assessment. Certainly you would not say that Kamala Harris is a slam dunk uh, or a safe bet against Donald Trump. Donald Trump brings his own, you know, Santa's sleigh worth of baggage uh, to the race, but Kamala Harris, between her laugh, her unaccomplishments, her Zen Kabuki uh, Hallmark cards, circular logic, you know, statements, um, Kamala, like you can find Democrats who will say Kamala Harris is not the person we thought she was back during the 2020 campaign, uh, particularly, I guess you should say the 2019 campaign because she didn't make it to 2020. Um I think Joe Biden running for another term is a terrible idea, and that is entirely separate from my ideological, political, social, economic, and foreign policy disagreements with this president. Already we can tell that Joe Biden at age 80 is not the guy he was back when he was vice president of the United States. Uh, He really didn't run that much in the 2020 cycle because of COVID. He ran what we call the basement campaign. Uh, Rich, you wrote a very good – previewing my editor's pick, you wrote a very good piece about this. Thank you. Um, you know, that we already know that he has a very light schedule uh, and that a combination, you know, that, you know, he will still ramble about how much he likes ice cream before pivoting to comments about a school shooting in Nashville. Um, when speaking off the cuff, he will give a perfectly fine speech off the teleprompter about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and then punctuate it with, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power and utterly undo everything he had done. He's not going to be better a year from now. He's not going to be better if reelected two years from now. And he's going to be an absolute mess by the time he's 86 years old. The entire Democratic Party, most of the media is just operating in blind denial of this obvious thing we can see in front of us. It is a true the emperor's new clothes kind of moment. Although I would note that the New York Times editorial page went right up to the edge of saying Joe Biden should not run for another term. They basically said, well, he's got to be very upfront and very honest about any health issues he's having. Yeah. He's not doing enough interviews. That's he's not doing enough questions and answers. Yeah. No, it's, so, yeah. so, no, Rothman, tough X question for you. At this juncture, percentage odds that Joe Biden will be president of the United States come uh, January 2025 from zero. Nah, not going to happen 100%. It's a lock. Uh, all of this is as you say, predicated on the fact that we are here at this moment of history and we have limited vantage into the future. Um, but I would say it's more than likely. I'd say maybe a 65, 70% chance, especially in the event that Donald Trump wins the nomination. If he doesn't win the nomination, if if Ron DeSantis pulls a rabbit out of his hat, it will be 
next to impossible for Joe Biden to cast Ron DeSantis as the next Donald Trump. And it has nothing to do with Ron DeSantis, but everything to do with Donald Trump. What will Donald Trump be doing? He won't be advocating yeah, Joe Biden's right. line yeah. that this guy's just like me. He's mm-hmm. going to be saying that this guy's nothing like me. Right. And, right. and he's going to be chasing media attention. Why is he saying things like, you know, rewarding his Florida endorsers with the accusation that they preside over a fetid hellscape? Because he has a sixth sense that that's what the press wants to hear. He's very good at telling the press exactly what they want to hear. And they will want to hear horrible things about Ron DeSantis, and he will provide. Charlie Cook. I think Biden has a 60% chance because it's difficult to unseat incumbents, because it's likely Donald Trump will be the nominee, and because... I think Biden has thus far managed to avoid showing his age in a way that is disqualifying. But I wouldn't put it any higher than 60% for the reasons I outlined earlier. Jim Geary. I'll be the relative optimist of the group and say that between the possibilities of losing the race to the Republican nominee or some other reason being put on the uh, injured reserve, so to speak, uh, Biden's chances of being sworn in as president are about 49%. Yeah, I'm right where Jim is. I'm at, I'll put it at 50. Um, you know, it's, it's probably 60% against Donald Trump, but there's some possibility that Trump will not be the nominee. And there's some possibility that, as, as Jim alludes to, that something terrible could happen to Joe Biden, which we don't want to happen. So I'd put it right at 50, which is higher than any, anyone else in the United States at the moment. So with that, let's pause and hear from our second sponsor. This episode, I on the FTC from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. As Americans deal with rising prices, record inflation, and fears of a looming recession, President Biden's Federal Trade Commission under the direction of Chair Lena Khan is pursuing anti-consumer, anti-competitive measures against American industries, killing innovation, and threatening America's dynamic 21st century economy. And the worst part, American taxpayers are footing the bill for bureaucrats at the FTC to threaten to break up businesses and stop mergers and acquisitions. That's why the Competitive Enterprise Institute launched their Eye on FTC campaign exposing abuses of power at the FTC, calling on Congress to reassert oversight over this rogue agency and protecting consumers from government overreach. CEI is defending free markets and American capitalism, which are the greatest forces for peace and prosperity the world has ever known. To learn more, visit IonFTC.com. That's E-Y-E on FTC. Dot com and consider helping CEI stop abuses of power at the FTC. So let's go ask a question here with our final segment. We've been running a little long so far. We're going to go to something that uh, arguably matters even less than cable news, but we're going to talk about it uh, anyway, which is the upset over Twitter's various uh, policies. I must confess I have not followed this in great detail, but it used to be you'd get a blue check mark to uh, confirm that you're who, who you say you are. This was a, uh, a elite status thing for some people, or at least for some people who didn't have blue check marks. And Elon Musk, kind of scrounging around in the couch cushions for extra uh, coins to try to make this purchase work for him, has decided to strip 
people of blue check marks and make them pay for blue check marks. And this has led to a lot of confusion because you are easily um, someone can pretend to be an entity or a person if there is no blue check mark. So there actually some blue check marks have been given out to key accounts. Elon Musk says he's paying the fee. And then the, these people have tried to make it clear because they want to be embarrassed that they're not playing, paying the fee. They'll change their Twitter handles to try to get the blue check mark off. And then someone at Twitter will put it back on. And then people will ask Twitter for comments and they'll get poop emojis back and on and on and on. Please correct me if uh, I'm mistaken in any of that. But Jim Gary, the exit question to you is Elon Musk screwing up Twitter. Yes or no? Yeah, and this goes back to a very basic question of what that blue check mark was supposed to be there for. I believe everybody at National Review had them. Uh, one of our folks way back when had reached out and gotten. I think we, I think I had to have a National Review email address for them to be verified. Basically, the whole was not you're important, you're special, we like you. It was simply this is this you are who you say you are. This was not some. Uh, Rich Lowry or Jim Garrity imposter account. Although, if you have, you know, if the desire to create one of those, please have your head examined. There's got to be better th- ways to, do, to spend your life. Um, yeah, go but the whole question, people, people seem to think that this was uh, a significant that the previous ownership, you know, that certain people were important. Some people would apply for verification, and it was very, you know, they'd take forever to get here to hear back from them. Some very pr- famous people. We're like, why can I not get my account verified? Some people who didn't seem all that, you know. And when Musk came in, I guess he decided, oh, I'll get people to pay for it. Well, if you're using Gmail or uh, YouTube or uh, any other account, you don't need to pay for, you know, uh, you know, verification you are who you say you are. So people kind of look at this and kind of scratch their head and say, what is going on here? I think, you know, Elon Musk is a guy who does whatever his gut tells him to do on any given day. And unfortunately, unlike, you know, when you're tinkering with rockets, uh, Elon Musk is attempting to adjust the rocket while it is in flight. And the people who've used Twitter up until now are like, wait, why are you changing things? And, you know, people are leaving in frustration, allegedly. No, Rothman, he's messing up Twitter, yes or no? I mean, yeah, but also it doesn't matter. Um, so Elon Musk's rationale for taking over the place was that it had it was run capriciously, it was opaque, and it was elitist. And he has made it more capricious, more opaque, and more elitist by giving out you know these blue check marks to people who are popular for whatever reason, or they just have a lot of followers. Um, so I mean, whatever the rationale was, it clearly doesn't motivate his his business decisions. I find it actually kind of valuable to have gotten rid of the verification thing, because while it takes a lot of work to try to maintain a healthy relationship with Twitter, um, you know, if you look on the iOS app, you could see what verified people were engaging with you, were responding to you, were talking to you at at the, you know, filtering out just about the rest of the universe of people. And that becomes a feedback mechanism and it becomes a source of validation. And it's something you uh, run the risk of chasing, which corrupts. And by taking that away, I find it to be valuable to no longer have even even to combat the instinct to check to see, you know, what verified people in my world are saying, because it's a, just a narrow perspective. Charlie, yes or no? Yes and no. Mm. He has totally screwed up the verification system, which should be a means by which to know 
beyond a shadow of a doubt whether someone is who they say they are. His vision for this was to verify the entire world. But of course, he's not doing that. He's verifying those people who pay. No, in the sense that a lot of people who should never have been banned were banned under the Ancien Regime, but are now back. I know a bunch of these people, not bomb throwers, not white supremacists, not people who did anything wrong, people who expressed political or religious opinions that the employees at Twitter before Elon Musk didn't like, and their accounts were taken away. And now all of those people are back, and I think that is an improvement and it shouldn't be overlooked. You know, I just don't know. I don't follow Twitter closely enough. It it does seem one of the points was to be less arbitrary, and that has not been achieved. As Charlie points out, it is it is freer, which is good. But I just can't get my head around the fact. I mean, this is a guy who has has had a transformational effect on the U.S. rocket program. Has built these these wonderful cars that uh, at least at least a lot of people really like. And and I just I see these tweets from him replying to people like Paul Krugman on on Twitter, like. What a waste of his time. It's just an enormous waste of his time. You know, I, I think he just he should have bought the thing and then you know, use Twitter occasionally as a, a megaphone for himself and, and let someone else run it. Um, but this this is, you know, we'll look back decades from now. It's, it's like, I don't know, Henry Ford being distracted by uh, I, I, I I don't know what would have been the, the Hating well, running a newspaper, <laughs> <laughs> um, but distract you know whatever distracted him from building cars was not not a good thing. But anyway, let's uh, hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, we've talked about a lot of stories that don't matter on this episode, but finally, after fifty minutes or whatever it's been, we're finally going to get to the story that matters: the Jets trade to acquire Aaron Rodgers. You know, if you look back on Twitter, since we were just talking about that, you can find me saying that given a choice, I would rather the New York Jets had traded the two first round picks to get Lamar Jackson for the long haul, as opposed to getting a likely, uh, hopefully a two-year rental of Aaron Rodgers, perhaps as little as one year. It all kind of depends how it goes. I suppose it's possible that even at age 39 going on 40, Aaron Rodgers believes he's got more than two more good years of football in him. He was not Great last year, but he was playing with a fractured thumb. Uh, the previous two years, he was like back-to-back MVPs. I regret to tell fans of the Tennessee Titans, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and I don't know who or anybody that Noah Rothman roots for, uh, that the, 20, the, uh, the 2024 Super Bowl uh, will be held aloft by most valuable player Aaron Rodgers and the triumphant New York Jets. Uh, it's over. Give it all up. Just, you know, vote it in for the rest of the year. I, I don't um, have any illusions about the Titans going to the Super Bowl. So this has not hurt me, Jim. Maybe Charlie's a different a different uh, proposition. No, no, the, the Jaguars are looking good. No, um, obviously, I had my doubts. But when your team goes out and gets a guy who is a surefire first ballot Hall of Famer, and he still has some gas in the tank, and they've got players like Brees Hall and uh, Garrett Wilson and Sauce Gardner and uh, Quinn and Williams, then you've got a good defense and a running game, and we hopefully we pick up a few offensive linemen in the draft later this week. And who knows? You ride for it. We're ride or die for the next two years. Yep. And it's a heck of a lot more exciting than the Jets have been for the last no, decade congr- or so. Congratulations. I'm a fan of uh, a team's going for it, and the, the Jets are. So best of luck with that. Noah Rothman, you're opening the pool. In a couple of weeks. That's right. So if you remember the summer of 2020 in the Northeast, uh, depths of the pandemic, it was a hot one, very hot one. And we resolved at that point that we had to move 
because we needed a pool in our lives if this ever happened again. And so we moved, we got a pool. This is the second year that we're opening it up. And in a couple of weeks, so I'm down at the, the little pool shed that we have cleaning up, you know, sweeping away all the bee carcasses from the nest that apparently was made in there over the winter and uh, getting the chemicals together. And it's just nice to, uh, to be setting up the, the summer season, which is approaching imminently. Charlie, dodgeball. Great, a great American game. A great American game and an even greater American game when you get to play it with other parents against your own children, which was what happened at the weekend at a kid's party. The kid's in question, cycled through some games, baseball, kickball, which I'd never seen. Sort of no, kickball is a, a great game. Great game. Yeah, and then dodgeball. And one of the fellow dads said, why don't we take on the kids, which met initially with murmurs of disapproval from all the mothers at the party, but eventually caught on. And that we did. It was enormous fun to throw things at my children and have them throw them back and i quite liked a suggestion that i overheard as we were all walking off the turf one guy said you know we should come back get drunk and play <laughs> husbands versus wives because <laughs> it'll be a lot cheaper than therapy <laughs> so i saw the movie air and unfortunately ross douthat is correct it's kind of disappointing it's it's obviously kind of a minimalist thing the the story of how nike signed michael jordan and signed the air jordan this revolutionary basketball shoe but on the other hand it's it's a really cool story but it just doesn't achieve takeoff it's not it's just not kind of uh um clever and um sharp enough and it's just sort of uh dank and and dark because a lot of it happens in this old nike headquarters in the pacific northwest you know that's built to 1980 standards not not a lot of uh, uh huge open windows but you think with matt damon and ben affleck you know you can't go too wrong but Matt Damon plays the basketball expert at, at Nike, and he's kind of this sh- slumpy, slow-moving guy and just just not likable or compelling enough as a movie character. Ben Affleck was quite good as as Phil Knight, the CEO of Nike. And then I haven't looked this up, but obviously there's some rights issue with Michael Jordan. So Michael Jordan does not appear, and he has to show up at these uh, uh, um, meetings with the, the sneaker Companies and you just you never you just see the back of his head so that that's kind of weird as as well I still I still kind of liked it it's it's a it's a decent airplane movie but not as good as it could have been in my estimation with that it's time for our editor's picks Jim Garrity what's your pick well as I alluded to earlier uh, your column Joe Biden prepares his next basement campaign is my true first pick but because I already mentioned that I'm going to give a secondary pick to a guy who I have some disagreements with on a regular basis, but I think he's correct, even if we see Tucker Carlson differently. Uh, Michael Brendan Doherty uh, wrote yesterday about Tucker Carlson as the next big thing in independent media, and that even though I'm, I'm certainly not you know, uh, crying in my whiskey about uh, Tucker Carlson, nor do I think Tucker Carlson is, I think Carlson has the, you know, the great possibility of being something akin to a Joe Rogan figure and kudos, or we should, you know, salute MBD for recognizing uh, the likelihood or the possibility of this course for uh, Tucker Carlson in the in the months and years to come. No, Roth, what's your pick? It's an MBD love fest. It's my pick is also a Michael Brandon Doherty piece, Populism from the Left, which he wrote last week about uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign. And um, it's a good reminder that in, you know, 20th century post-war uh, Democrat Democratic Party conceptualized, conception of itself was that of an outsider party. And as 
as a such, it was banging on the doors, you know, trying to break into the halls of power. And it was much more amenable to conspiratorial thinking and paranoia. And as it has reconceptualized itself as an insider party and a defender of institutions, it has shed that conception of itself. But that's where the heart is. And if it were, if it loses power in the near term, it's very easy to conceive of a shift in the Democratic Party back towards conspiracy theories and paranoia and, as Michael writes, vaccine skepticism. Charlie, what's your pick? My pick is from the last issue of the magazine. I already chose Dan Hannon's piece on Shakespeare. I'm going to choose this week Douglas Murray's piece on the posthumous editing of great authors, and in particular this line, which I thought was insightful. The second thing that such posthumous re-editing does is to rob us of an appreciation of what the past was actually like and of how it was different from the present. I think Orwell would have agreed. So my pick is a Dominic Pino post on the Oakland A's uh, moving to... Las Vegas are planning to move on Las Vegas. And this post just proves that Dominic knows something about everything. It's a, uh, a really a detailed, and if you're like me, a sports fan and kind of interested in uh, uh, his history of sports, just uh, a, a run through of all the franchises and the different cities they have played in. So the, the A's are, are going to their fourth city. They run through Philadelphia, Kansas City, Oakland. And Las Vegas, and I have to say that that uh, Oakland Coliseum is a terrible concrete, characterless stadium. But I've always enjoyed being there. It's always been kind of a pleasant way to watch a ball game. And I sometimes regret I'm not out there. I in, in my idle moments sometimes look at StubHub for for random events and. You know, you could go see the Yankees out there and get a second row seat for like nine dollars for for a lot of games, which is uh, which is one of the reasons they are moving and heading to Las Vegas. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a Nashville podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of Nashville Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to FastGrowingTrees.com and I on the FTC from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.